Well, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to read verses 8 through 17. All right, we've been going through this great letter. It's all about how do you follow Jesus, especially when you're surrounded by a culture that either doesn't care about the gospel, or at worst case, in Peter's, the original hearers, right, the, the surrounding culture is hostile, uh, putting pressure on of saying you're crazy for believing these things. And so, right, if you want to remember, Peter has given the church their missional identity. This is who we are. This is who Christians are. We are Jesus' representatives in the world, sent to love as he loved, serve as he loved, and we do that while the world watches and wonders who we are and why we do such things. And so, with that little introduction, we're going to read 1 Peter chapter 3. There's Bibles underneath your chairs. It's in the New Testament. Um, this is God's word. Peter says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And this is God's word. He has spoken to us today. Uh, It is true and trustworthy. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray you would help us this morning just be recaptured by the awe and wonder of, of being in Christ, of being chosen and precious as Jesus is chosen and precious. And as we believe those things, may we go out from here today as a community of hope, a community that forgives as we've been forgiven, a community that serves as we have been served, a community that seeks to be merciful because we have received mercy, and help us do that in a world that doesn't go well. And so for that, we need to be changed by your gentleness, and we need your spirit to be at work among us and and do that. Uh, Soften our hearts that we might love one another, and love you as Jesus loved. In Jesus' name, amen. So in this section of Peter, from like 2.12 to, to here, and it's going to keep going, but he's, he's on a mission to show that um, Christianity isn't crazy, right? It's good for society. It's good not just for us as Christians. That there's power here to deal with all forms of suffering, But it's also part of the reason we live the Jesus life is to show our neighbors who don't know Jesus 
uh, that he's good for all. Uh, that it's not a cultural evil, even though that is oftentimes the accusation. And so it's just interesting to ask that question. If you were to ask your neighbors, your coworkers, someone on the street, is Christianity good for our culture? What do you think they would say? Right? Or if, you were, if we were sitting over a cup of coffee, what would you say to that question? Right? And I know the way it's been interacted with me in, in the community, I know some of our neighbors politely ask, well, how does it relate to my beliefs? Right? Um, have you seen the new creed that's floating around signs in, in different neighborhoods? Um, it's maybe a future Sunday school discussion, right? This, there's a sign in yards that I've seen and, and seen on the internet that in this house we believe black lives matter. Women's rights are human rights. No human is illegal. Science is real. Love is love. Kindness is everything. Right? And so I would say, if your Jesus supports that, then yeah, it's good. Right? There are others, and I think this is probably more like the world we live in as compared to the world Peter lives in. It's just general apathy. People don't care. It's not the question they're asking. Right? There was a French philosopher, he said, he said this about religion. It's very important not to mis- mistake hemlock for parsley. Right? You don't want to garnish your, your salad with, with poison. But to believe or not believe in God, it's not important at all. Right? You do you. And so when we as Christians go out into the world as a people of hope and say Jesus rose from the dead in real time and real space, this is a real story, uh, that, that living hope because he is alive sets me free of, from my fear of death. Uh, it's an anchor for my soul in times of trouble when life sucks because I know because Jesus is alive that one day he's going to return and all things sad are going to co- come untrue. It's going to be like a bad dream. Jesus is my hope. This is how I get through And oftentimes people say, good for you. Or a more casual shrug. And so I say all that because we just read a section of Peter that it's it's about how do you respond when your neighbors are hostile. And and we're thinking more in terms of how do we respond when our neighbors don't care. Uh, I think that's how this is going to go out into our world. And and there is hostility sometimes. but it is. How do you respond when life is unfair? How do you respond when people are against you, particularly for Christ's sake? And, you know, we aren't being fiercely and violently opposed in Boston Spa. Thank God for that. Um, when it comes to cultural power, influence, and, you know, in the political realm, or people loving Christian values out in the world, yeah, we're, we're a minority now. In comparison to what Peter's church was going through, that's just a minor irritation, right? I mean, Peter's audience, they weren't, this is what one commentator says, they weren't major social influencers by any means. They were the slaves, mainly women, some husbands. Not, not, there are some wealthy, but a lot of poor, people who weren't cultural influencers. The early Christians were a persecuted, slandered, misunderstood, and overlooked minority. So how did they deal with that? Well... They didn't complain. They just said, let's be a community of hope in the midst of a hostile world because Jesus is alive. And God worked through that. Simple faithfulness. Committed to doing good even when evil came against them. 
Uh, just that phrase, committed to doing people good when people do us harm. Does it, is that the reputation of Christianity in our culture? Something to work towards, right? So this is who we are. This is who we're sent in the world to do. And, and the way we do that, there's two pieces here. We have two tools in the, the Christian um, toolbox to defend our faith. Uh, first, we're going to see that we need a peaceable community. That's who the church is called to be. Uh, and then second, the church is made up of peacemaking apologists, defenders of the faith. And so let's, let's look at the peaceable community in verse 8, where Peter says, Finally, all of you, you have, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. All right, so context, Peter's been talking to servants, right? slaves in a household, learn from their example as they follow Jesus, learn from the wives as they love their husbands with gentleness, and he's talked to husbands who are called to honor their wives. They're all examples on how the Jesus life works in, in real life. And now he's saying, all of you, let's talk to everybody in the church, whoever you may be. Right? And the, the way he describes the church, the kind of community, the gospel forms, is, is uh, heart-achingly beautiful. Right? A place of refuge and safety in the midst of a hostile world or an apathetic world. And so what are those marks of a peaceable community? Well, you have to have unity of mind. We'll just run through these. Right? You've got to have the same thoughts and attitudes. Right? What, would the, what would those be? Well, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example as to who's that you may walk in his footsteps, and yet we're all in agreement that Christ is Lord. He is the God of the Old Testament. He is your creator who became human in the real world to die for sinners. Um, we're in agreement on the gospel. We're in agreement that we ought to love one another in the church. Um, and one of the reasons we confess our faith every week together but something different is pushing towards this goal. Right? That we agree, this is who Jesus is. Uh, this is what he's done for us. This then is how we should live. That's why we've been in the Ten Commandments the last several weeks. Right? Because if we're not in agreement on who Jesus is and what he's done, it's, a, it's awful hard to be bound together as a community in Christ. Right? And I think if 2020 has taught us anything, forming community is hard. Christ-centered community is not easy. So do you understand what the gospel is calling you to do in relation to life here inside the church together? For Christ's sake, be sympathetic towards one another. Have brotherly love, right? We are a family in Christ. Like to the point where this is now your main family. Not to the not to say you ignore your family that you grew up with, but this is now your priority because Christ is your priority. Like your main identity is in Christ. You belong to him. Christ is Lord. Right? All these other things then fit together. There's a Christian social scientist who I find helpful, Christina Cleveland. Um, 
And she says, one of the reasons we don't experience Christian community the way the New Testament describes it is this one. Because to adopt together where everybody is on the same page, a common identity, it's daunting, it's painful. But it's the only way to be unified. Uh, It's actually consistent with Jesus' teaching that the household of God is to take precedence over every other household or community. Right? Where Jesus would say things like, your love for me should look like hate in comparison to your love for your family. Right? Saying life together as a church takes priority. Jesus becomes the center. And so Christina Cleveland goes on to say, if you're going to embrace our, your Christian identity to being a part of a family in Jesus, we have to engage in this difficult process of lessening our grip on the identities that we have idolized. It's going to jar your soul. It's going to cause havoc in your life. It's not going to be easy because we want, we want to stay the same. And it's going to feel painfully unnatural when you start because we've lived outside of our true identity of being known by God for so long. Do you understand what she's saying? I mean, she's, she's, she's getting onto something. What Peter is saying is don't be conformed by the passions of your former ignorance. Don't be... You were ransomed from ways that didn't work for you before, feudal ways that you inherited from your culture. Put simply, you were different before you met Jesus. And now to have Jesus as the main way you see yourself, the main way you see your brothers and sisters in Christ, the, way, the main way you see your time, the reason you're here, the, the reason you live among your neighbors, right? That is hard. Signing up to have the train you're riding on now jump the tracks and try and get over to another track. Right, so, but it's timely, right? Identity is all our culture is talking about these days, these days, right? We're tempted to see ourselves solely through the lens of race. Race is important. Or solely through whom I love, or solely through whom I vote for, right? And the gospel is saying, no, you are solely God's son. Live out of this family of now being God's family. Love one another with a brotherly love. Let that be the priority and the lens through which you see one another. Right, so if we're going to be God's chosen race, God's family, it's, it's asking you that question. Are you doing the hard work to let go of the way the culture is teaching you to see yourself and to let the gospel reshape your identity and who you are and how you see yourself. Right? It's hard, but that's what brotherly love is. I'm committed to you, whether you agree with me or not, because, because of Jesus. I got a newsletter this week from uh, the Chesterton House. All right, Chesterton House is a college ministry on the campus of Cornell run by some, uh, some of our friends in our denomination. And they, they have a house on the campus where Christians can come together and live intentional, in, in intentional Christian academic community uh, where they wrestle with these things together. And, and one of the roommates said, you know, my roommate, I'll, I'll paraphrase, he drove me nuts. <laughs> right? He caused personal conflict in every possible dimension from personality, <laughs> who he was, to political orientation. They were 
polar opposites on every contentious issue. But by living together, looking at each other, hearing the gospel, they've actually become good friends who value each other because they have different viewpoints. Meaning they were discipled to let Jesus be their main identity so they can turn and look at each other and say, you are my brother, you are my sister. And so Peter, when he says to all Christians, all of you, he's asking, do you have this kind of view of the church? Do you have this brotherly or sisterly love for one another? A willingness to work through the awkwardness of being known. The awkwardness of disagreeing, even though we're brothers and sisters in Christ, on secondary issues. Because look at how the list is organized. This is brilliant. At the very center is brotherly love, which is bracketed by sympathy and compassion. It's just how the Hebrew mind works. And so the way this is going to work, you you need to see people the way Jesus saw people, with sympathy and with a tender heart, which is, that's how Jesus looked out at the crowds, right? He saw them and he had compassion. His heart went out to them. The different translations say why, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He loved them. Uh, Sympathy, it's the ability to weep with those who weep, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to step into their shoes, to to join in their miseries. Uh, It's this tender heart, compassion, it's the Good Samaritan seeing his racial and political enemy beaten, left for dead on the side of the road, and having compassion, and letting that compassion control his kindness from that moment on. You let yourself be known, and you get to know others. That's the church. And bracketed by that is then the mind, how you think about people. That's the part we don't see. I don't know what you really think right now. Right? But you want to be united in mind, and you need to have humility, a humble mind. Right? We're humble. You're not worried about what happens to me. You consider others more significant than yourselves. And when you do that, you're not going to repay evil for evil. You're not going to return insult for insult. In fact, you're going to bless because that's what we've been called to do as Christians. For you will obtain a blessing. That's a community of hope. Hope for every individual in the, in the room. Because we don't fight the way the world fights. We breathe in God's forgiveness. We breathe out forgiveness for others. Can't do this without the gospel. <laughs> but this is what we've been called to. This is, this is part of the package of being a Christian. To bless. To be a people who bless regardless of how they treat you. That you would be a, like a cool spring in, in, a, in a waste desert for your brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how they treat you. Giving back good for evil. Now why? Why would you do that? Well, Peter says, here's the motivation to not defend yourself. And he quotes, this is indented in your Bible in verse 10 through 12. Uh, He quotes Psalm 34. Which says, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. 
So there it is, right? It's we are a people, a community. We're called to be peaceable. We're people who pursue peace. And that's, that's our testimony to the world. Right? And this comes with a gut punch. <laughs> I mean, this is hard. Who is Psalm 34 written to? Who's, what, who are the scriptures for? I mean, it first comes to the household of faith. David, writing this while in exile among the Philistines, wrote this prayer while hated by his brothers, the tribe of Benjamin, living among his enemies, trusting that God would protect him, and in the meantime, be a person who pursues peace. Don't live by lies. That's what the psalm is doing. He's saying the ethics of here's how you should live in light of the gospel, the four, here's why you would not fight back. It's all packed into Psalm 34 here, right? Because we're called to seek peace and pursue it. And that word pursue is it's really intense. Sometimes so intense it's translated persecute. Because right? you're really chasing someone down if you want to harm them. Right? So think about it this way. Pursue peace with such intensity that you're persecuting conflict with non-retaliation. Persecute lies with the truth. Persecute hate with love. Persecute evil with good. I mean, it means when life stinks, when you're in conflict, don't run away. Go find the person. Hunt them down for the sake of the peace and purity of the church. If you're in conflict out in the world, forgive. Surprise them with your grace. Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, God is watching. I mean, one, that's an immense comfort because he's your defender. He sees your suffering as one who's already suffered likewise. But two, he's watching. I mean, it's also a motivator, right? If, if you knew the Lord was watching, would you use those words in that argument, in that moment? This is the other piece. The Lord is also against those who do evil in the church, in the Christian community. I mean, there, there seems to be a parallel where he already said to the husbands, if you don't honor your wives as the weaker vessel and treat them with honor, uh, preciousness, and right, if you do harm, their prayers are going to be hindered. And here he says to everyone, quoting Psalm 34, right, his ears are open to the prayers of the righteous, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Seems to imply, right, not that... Our goodness gets God to hear our prayers, but if we're actively doing harm, it's clearly going to affect your prayer life. Right? So, put all that together. In order to cultivate this peaceable Christian community, it's impossible to do this without being aware of who you are, who Jesus is, and a willingness to suffer for one another. That's what the gospel is doing. It's forming us together to be a church that persecutes conflict, walks in his footsteps, doesn't return insult for insult, doesn't run away, because as Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's what we're going to taste when we come to communion here in a few moments. All right. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. 
You know what that requires? Everyone to believe the gospel and say, I'm in. I'm committed. I'm here. I'm going to pursue each other and Christ. All right, and you remember Paul, the apostle, when he was Saul, and he says, I was zealous. I was the most zealous, passionate person there is. I mean, just read Paul. He's clearly an intense dude. <laughs> That's probably an understatement. I mean, you can't run around and try and throw people in jail or cause them physical harm unless you're fully committed to some other idea that they are, they are offending. Peter is saying, pursue peace. To handle conflict the way Jesus did on the cross. Pay the price because he paid it for you. And the only way to get there, of course, is to love the gospel, to be obsessed with the gospel as the angels are, and that's chapter one again. Now, that's the first point, the second one's shorter. Right, if we're going to be a peaceable community, we're also sent out into the world to be peacemaking apologists. So these, these lessons go out with us into the world where, where we go. Because Peter keeps going, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? For even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Don't be afraid of them or troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ. The Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is within you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So here's the big idea. At some point, if you're fully committed to the Jesus life and you forgive, uh, you're not contributing to the conflict, you're helping be a peacemaker in the midst of conflict out in the world, in the workplace, or in your home, um, some point they're going to ask, why are you treating me like that? What is the reason for the hope you have in the midst of your suffering? Right? Who are you? What, what planet are you from? Why aren't you taking out that metaphorical voodoo doll and just sticking it repeatedly? Because I deserve it. Why don't you defend yourself? And verse 15 is, is the center here when it says, um, in your hearts honor Christ as the Lord is holy, and what does that look like? Always ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope you have. All right, so we're apologists for Jesus. That's the technical term. It comes straight from here. And it's not a, I'm sorry for being a Christian, right? It's not an apology. Uh, it's more like a legal defense. But not quite courtroom because it's, it's tainted with gentleness and respect. Right? But it is saying when you're surrounded by people who are in your face, who misunderstand the gospel, who think you're nuts for following Jesus, be ready to just give a reason why you believe what you believe. Fight with your words with, that are saturated with gentleness and respect. And so if I were to ask you that question, why are you a Christian? What is the hope that you have? How would you answer that question? Right? It's the elevator speech. You got two minutes till you get to the floor, and for some reason the conversation has come up. What are you going to say? Right? The hope that you have within you and Peter is it's a living hope. It's chapter one. Jesus is raised from the dead. So at bare minimum, Peter is saying, get ready to talk about the resurrection of Jesus. And there's a whole lot of other things to explain, but but a defense for Christ being Lord 
starts, right, ground floor, Jesus rose from the dead. According to God's great mercy, chapter 1, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, even being guarded by God through your faith for salvation ready to be revealed. All right, so obviously start with the Bible. <laughs> it's good to, to get someone to actually say, hey, have you ever read the Bible? Do you know, do you know Jesus' claims? Do you know the magnitude of the claim? But if you notice, who is Peter talking to? He's not just talking to the pastor and elders to be able to do this. Uh, it's not just for those who love philosophy and like to argue. Right? It's not just for the extroverts. He says, finally, all of you. It's for you. Right? Everyone is called to be ready, always be ready, to give an answer for the hope you have within you. There's all kind of reasons and resources to grow in your ability to talk about it. I mean, obviously, you want to just read the Gospels over and over again and become familiar with who Jesus is. I can email people who are good at this. There's great resources. Um, But the question is, can you communicate the resurrection of Jesus in a way, someone who is apathetic to the Bible, that they can understand the words that you use? You can't control how they respond. That's not on us. We're just called to be ready to give a reason for the hope we have. Right? And can you do it with gentleness and respect? Are you, are you willing to look foolish in order to win the person? Can you not insult someone or resort to character mis- mischaracterizations. Can you state their position in the exact way they would state it? And they would say, yeah, that's what I believe. That's respect. That's gentleness. I mean, the goal, right, is as you respond graciously, they'll be ashamed of the misunderstanding they had and the unfair treatment they put on you in the midst of the conversation. And you get there by honoring Christ as holy. And Peter has lifted up an Old Testament passage where it talks about the Lord of hosts honoring him as holy and let him be your fear and your dread from Isaiah 8 and says, hey, the Old Testament God is Christ, the Lord. Honor him. He's alive. Always be ready. Don't be afraid of what they think because Jesus is on your side. So, I just put a whole lot of, here's what you must do on you. <laughs> but it's, part of it is just the text we're looking at, and it's bracketed by many different descriptions of what Jesus has already done, and this is going to lead us to the table. Right? We suffer to do good in the face of evil. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Why? Verse 18 For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order to bring us to God. That helps motivate your humility and gentleness, doesn't doesn't it? You can 
absolutely 100% be in a conversation with someone who was a better person than you. At the very core of your faith, as Christ died for you when you were yet a sinner, an enemy, not living well. And perhaps I can say I, I don't have everything right, but I do know Jesus is alive and he rose from the dead. All right. So in a moment we're going to taste Christ's suffering, the righteous for the unrighteous. But we, we have two main tools, our gentle words and defense of the resurrection and our fierce family-like love for one another. And in an apathetic world, when people see that kind of commitment and a clear reason grounded in reality, you have a conversation. <laughs> you have some place to start. It's up to the Holy Spirit at that point. All right. So, yeah, I'll end with this. Uh, a Christian was living in Cambridge, um, England. Sorry, Norm, not New York. <laughs> uh, but he writes that, you know, while living in England, probably studying, he's seeing a faithful Muslim every week out in the street corner, passing out literature on Muhammad and the Quran. And this poor Muslim watched as person after person took the Muslim literature and then just tossed it in the trash. And after a few months, this Christian took pity and said, hey, can I buy you coffee? Let's go, let's go chat. And they went in, they sat down, and, and the Muslim said, well, why are you being so kind to me? And he said, well, this is what Jesus would do. And he'd go, oh, you're a Christian. Then you know my pain. And the Christian said, well, what do you mean? And he just sighed. He's like, these people around me, they care nothing of God. They care nothing of spirituality. They're totally indifferent to the biggest questions of life. They simply do not care. How can that be? Right? The depths of our care is, is going to have to break through the apathy. Right? And that's my prayer is that uh, our apathetic neighbors, even our antagonistic ones, would see our willingness to suffer to love them and one another. And they would see in us that there is no amount of suffering that can take away the hope we have because Jesus is alive. Go and learn what that means. Let's pray. Now, Father, we thank you for Jesus who saw us at our worst. His eyes were on our sin. And he became human, not considering himself, um, not considering equality with God something to hold on to, became human just like us to treat us as more significant than himself, being faithful, obedient, humble, even to death on a cross. And so I pray that that stubborn commitment to love us to the end would soften our hearts as we come to the table and would also uh, renew and refresh us and make us willing to love as we've been loved today. And if there are those who do not know the freedom that grace gives to love to give us supernatural power to do all these things because you are with us. Um, Lord, show yourself. Show us Jesus this morning. Uh, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to invite the elders to come forward.